Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Happy, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is in partnership with the Koran Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Neustein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Neustein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton. We have reached the final chapter in the book. It is the final chapter of the unit as well that we have been discussing. Chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24. Much like chapter 21, chapter 24 also discusses an episode that raises many questions, some of which are almost impossible to resolve. The text reports that God's anger continued to burn against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and count Israel and Yehuda. We do not know why the divine rage is aroused. It is not indicated in the text. Is it perhaps connected to the end of chapter 23? The last mighty man on the list, namely Uriah HaChiti? Is this a lingering rage from David's most spectacular failure? Or is it something else entirely? Not clear. And if God incited David to count the people, how is that David's responsibility? Perhaps the easiest way to understand it is, often we have destructive thoughts. We don't always know the source of them. The question becomes when those destructive thoughts enter our minds, how will we respond? And so a prompt enter David's mind, count the people of Israel. And David runs with it. David tells Yoav, his chief of staff, to pass through the kingdom, all of the tribes, from Dun in the north until Beersheba in the south, and to count the people so that I might know their number. Yoav is very reluctant to do so. May God multiply them many times over. Why does my master the king desire this thing? But David's words to Yoav were overpowering, and Yoav and the other captains of the guard, the officers, go forth from before the king in order to count the people to count Israel. We know from Sefer Shmot, chapter 30, Parshat Kitisa, that taking a census of the people of Israel can be a fraught activity. As the Torah points out in that particular section, let there not be any plague when they are counted. And the Torah sets out the provisions of undertaking a census. Those that are above the age of 20, the males who are fit for the military are the ones that are to be counted according to the Torah. And only indirectly through their contribution of a half shekel. As if to say the Torah does not want us to turn people into simply numbers. 
Don't count a person as if he is a thing. Count the thing instead, the half shekel. Some of the commentaries speculate that it was one of these two things that constituted David's failure. Either he counted the males even below the age of 20, or perhaps he counted them directly without the contribution of the half shekel of silver. Both of these interpretations seem unlikely since the Torah explicitly rules out this kind of a census. Presumably David would have been aware of the Mosaic provisions. And to hold David responsible on a technicality does not seem to be the spirit of the narrative. We read on. The census takers made their way. They crossed the River Jordan. They started in the south and they continued northwards through the land of Gilad. And then they came back towards the west, going down the coast of Phoenicia, Sidon, and Tyre. And from there, they made their way down through the other tribes, reaching the Negev, the tribe of Yehuda, all the way down to Be'ersheva. And then they returned to Jerusalem after nine months and 20 days with the number. And Yoav now, pre- pre- now presents the number before the king. The tribes of Israel numbered 800,000 men that brandished the sword. The people of Yehuda numbered 500,000 men. A total of 1,300,000 fighting men divided into these two units. The tribes of Israel on the one hand, the tribe of Yehuda, the royal tribe, on the other And as soon as David receives the number, verse number 10 indicates, Vayach lev David oto, David's heart was stricken for having counted the people. And he said to God, I have transgressed greatly. Please God, atone for my transgression because I have been overly foolish. God the prophet now appears to David and he indicates that there will be consequences. God offers David three options. Either for there to be a famine raging for seven years, or three months of being a fugitive, and perhaps the people of Israel fugitives as well, before their enemies that pursue, or three days of plague in the land. And now tell me, says God the prophet, what I shall respond to the one who sent me. David cries out in verse number 14, a verse which will be adopted into the liturgy as part of the daily penitential prayer, the Tachanun. David said to God, I am greatly troubled. Let me fall in the hand of God because his mercies are great and not in the hand of another man. And so the plague rages, and 70,000 Israelites die from Dan to Be'er Sheva. The destroying angel stretched forth his hand to strike Jerusalem, and God relented. And he told the destroying angel, Rav, enough! Ata heref yadecha, withhold your hand. And at that time, the destroying angel was located at the threshing floor of Aravna the Jebusite.
David cries out, I am the one who is responsible. I have transgressed. I have sinned. What have these sheep done? May God's hand stretch forth against me and against my father's house. Effectively, what happens is, David counts the people, a plague breaks out. In spite of David's cries, 70,000 Israelites perish. But the plague is stayed at Jerusalem, David's capital, at a particular location, the threshing floor of Aravna, the Jebusite. And now God tells David to build an altar on that site, and he does so. He approaches Aravna, the Jebusite, and he requests from him to purchase the threshing floor in order to build an altar to God upon it, such that the plague be stayed. Aravna offers the threshing floor gratis for free and take the cattle for a burnt offering and take the threshing sledge, which is made out of wood and the other implements and use that as your firewood for the sacrifice. Aravna is prepared to give all of that to the king for nothing. But David says, no, I will surely buy it, in verse 24, from you by a price. I will not offer sacrifices to God on an altar which has been given as a gift. And so David purchased the threshing floor and the cattle, Bekesef Shikalim Chamishim, for 50 silver shekels. And there David built an altar to God and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, shulamim, vayeatar Hashem la'aretz, vateatzar ha'magefa me'al Yisrael, and the plague was stayed from upon the people of Israel. And with that, the book concludes. So we note, of course, that the plague concludes, the altar is built at the threshing floor of Aravna the Jebusite at Jerusalem, which David purchases at full price and refuses to receive as a gift. But as I said, the mystery that hangs over the narrative remains. And the commentaries try to explain why the plague breaks out Perhaps the most compelling interpretation is offered by Nachmanides by the Ramban in his commentary to the Book of Numbers. And in that discussion, the Ramban says the issue was not a technical one, as if David should have counted them through the half shekel, as if David should have counted only those 20 and above. Instead, the Ramban explains the divine anger was kindled because he counted them without any pressing need. He was not planning to go out to war. Nor did he need to know that number for any other reason at that time. Rak libo only to gladden his heart, Shemalach al-Amrav, that he ruled over such numerous people. In effect, 
The Ramban says David's desire to count the people came from a place of pride and a place of arrogance. To feel strong, to feel powerful, to feel like a monarch who ruled over a serious kingdom. That's why David wanted to count the people. We can readily appreciate how the punishment now fits the crime. The crime for David's pride in wishing to rule over many people is that some of them perish and the kingdom is reduced. 70,000 Israelites lose their lives. Of course, we might say, but they were innocent. And that is the case. There is a fundamental lesson which the narrative wants to highlight and has been highlighting for the entire length of this book. And that is the decisions that rulers make, whether good or bad, carry consequences for the people that they rule over, whether the people are deserving of those consequences or whether they are not. And that is such a powerful lesson for any leader to understand and to appreciate. There's no such thing as a personal decision. Every decision that the leader makes will have an impact, an impact on the people that he leads or that she leads. And sometimes we hope, most of the time, the impact will be constructive and the decision will be a good decision undertaken for the right reasons and the best motivation. And sometimes the consequences will be destructive when the decision taken was taken for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motivation. And the Ramban is alerting us that this was one of those moments. There was no necessity to count the people. David did so because he wanted to feel like a proud and powerful king. And that's not a good enough reason. And so the innocent victims are actually the people that he is meant to lead. And this, of course, as I said, is a recurring theme in Sefer Shemuel, which is so much consumed with the question of good leadership. Whether it's Shaul, or whether it's David, or whether it's Shemuel, and no human being is perfect. Every human being makes mistakes. But leaders have a special responsibility to make the best possible decisions for the best possible reasons. And that therefore, this becomes the fundamental lesson and takeaway from this cautionary tale. Of course, we appreciate, in the end, the plague is stopped and reversed at Jerusalem, at the threshing floor of Aravna the Jebusite, who must have been one of the Jebusites that remained even as David conquered the region and made Jerusalem his capital. Clearly not all of them were dislodged, but were allowed to remain living there in peace and in possession of their land. And David now purchases that threshing floor in order to build an altar even though Aravna offers it to him gratis for free. And the discussion that takes place between them, Aravna says, have it for free. And David says, I insist on paying. And he does so, reminds us very much of another episode in the Torah, 
namely the purchase of the cave of Machpelah by Avraham Avinu in order to bury beloved Sarah from none other than Ephron the Chittite. And the elements are the same. A non-Israelite owner of the land, an Israelite or proto-Israelite who purchases it at full market value because he will not receive it as a gift. And the dynamic in both situations is the same. There is no such thing as a gift which does not have strings attached. David wants the ownership of this threshing floor to be indisputable, indisputable as Avraham wants the ownership of the cave of Machpelah. As much as Ephron will give it to him for nothing, Avraham insists on paying full market value and more in order to lay down his claim to that piece of territory and make it clear that it was purchased fair and square and therefore is legally his. Interestingly enough, the Midrash adds another example to these two, which is the purchase by Jacob of the field when he arrives at Shechem, Vayiken et chelkat hasadeh, asher natasham aholo, it's not exactly the same because there's no report in the Jacob version of the Shechemites offering it to him for nothing. But the Midrash says, from here we derive an important principle, which is ownership, true ownership, is secured through legal means. And these three locations become critical for the biblical history of the people of Israel and beyond. As if to say, our claim to the land is a claim which is rooted in legal purchase. Ultimately, the place of the altar that David builds as the plague is stayed will become the site of the future temple. And this we know explicitly from the book of Chronicles, Chronicles 2, chapter 3, which reports that Shlomo built the temple on the very site that David had purchased from Aravna the Jebusite. In other words, the end of Sefer Shemuel ends in anticipation of the temple being built. That will really be the opening narratives of the book of Kings of Sefer Milachim. The first Ten chapters will be taken up with Shlomo constructing the ideal state. And at its center will be the mighty temple that rises above Jerusalem, the location of the experience of God's presence on earth. So effectively, David's purchase of this land anticipates the building of the temple, and that is the natural progression of the narratives, which is to say, Sefer Shemuel ends here, but the story does not end. It will continue organically into the book of Kings. How appropriate! That David's final reported act in Sefer Shemuel is the purchase of the land upon which the future temple will be built. Because ultimately, and with this we conclude, David's story is a story of tshuva and the centrality of tshuva in human experience. 
David makes mistakes. David has failures. Everyone does. And some of those are spectacular. What makes David unique is his ability to recognize that failure, to accept responsibility for it, and to resolve to do better in the future. And those are the hallmarks of every tshuva process. The temple, the ultimate site of God and the human encounter, is predicated on the precious idea of tshuva because there is no human being that is not in need of that gift. And so to conclude, Sefer Shemuel, in anticipation of that temple being built on the very site that David purchased in commemoration of overcoming the tragic consequences of his poor choice, there is no better way to end our story. Next time, we'll take a step back to consider the material that we have seen throughout this lengthy book and to attempt to pinpoint some of the critical themes and the critical messages of our studies. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you like what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.